Our scripture reading this morning is the 16th Psalm. Psalm 16. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their, their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to, she- my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Let's together ponder the words of Psalm 16. There is silence in the courtroom as the judge enters and takes his elevated seat. And then it's his turn behind the side where the defense is. There King David rises from his seat prepared and ready to give his opening statement. We are expecting a statement that lasts 5, 10, 15 minutes in length, but what David has to say is only one sentence in length. His opening statement, as found in verse 1, is the following. Preserve me, save me, rescue me, sustain me, O God, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Opening statement completed, David then sits back down. Do you understand what David is saying here? God, save me. And you want to know the reason why you should save me, why you should preserve my life? Because, as the King James Version says, for in thee, do I trust, period, end of story. And that's what it comes down to. That is the thesis statement of Romans, that the righteous shall live by faith. And that is the thing, the main idea, which should be the thesis statement of our lives and the question we ask today. Do I trust in God or not? And so with David's opening statement completed, he is now going to begin his defense and call upon witnesses and exhibits as found in verses 2 through 11 that will show us what a life that trusts in God looks like. And so what we want to do is we want to examine those verses and see, does this describe me or not? Do I trust in God? Or to use 20th century vernacular, do I really have a personal relationship with God or not? I think we can look at these verses and see from David's life 
do they match up to our lives? And so that's what I would like to do. Go to verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. Question. What is the first of the Ten Commandments? The first of the Ten Commandments. I remember years ago asking my kids and my wife in the car this question, and they all, I was very impressed, they all shouted and, and said that you should have no other gods before the one true God. Have no other gods before me. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah, the first commandment. as the way we've always learned it. But the Jew did not learn it that way. That was not the first commandment to the Jew. If you go to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 2, you find what they considered to be the first commandment. Or the first word, as they also would have called it. In Exodus 20 and verse 2, we find the following. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Commandment 1, finished. And then from then on, we get, you shall have no other gods before me, and so on and so forth. But to the Jew, commandment number one was that. A declaration of who God is, and don't miss this, all of the good that he's done for you. I really wish we would frame it the same way. I wish we could rewrite the way we interpret the Ten Commandments to have this as number one as well. Because don't you see what it is? Instead of just being by itself a long list of rules and, and obligations and commandments, let's start it out by saying this is who God is and this is all the good stuff he's already done for you up to this point. Now, doesn't it make sense to live a life of obedience after that? He says, I am the Lord, your God. He's not saying, I am the Lord, y'all's God. It's not plural, it's singular. It is directed to every single person. I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your God. I am the Lord, your God. And so a Jewish boy would have grown up and thought, the first two commandments are the following. God, you are my Lord, and I have no other gods before you. You are my Lord, and have no other gods before you, other than you. Now look at, the, look at verse 2 again. Back, go back to Psalm 16 and look at verse 2. It sounds a lot like commandments 1 and 2 to the Jew. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. Commandment number 1, I have no good apart from you. A little different. And I think that difference is good because I think it helps us understand idolatry and other gods in today's setting we are committing essentially idolatry and running after other gods if we think we can have good apart from god anytime we go and seek that like the prodigal son heading out into the far country anytime we seek good without god's presence and providence and blessing that is, in essence, idolatry. And so, I want to encourage you, point number one and thought number one is this, as you see, of a faith-filled life is that I recognize I have no good apart from my Lord. I recognize I have no good apart from my Lord. Now, an interesting thing, the end 
of verse 2 in the King James Version. It's a very difficult thing to translate the end of verse 2. The King James Version translates it a little differently, and I think there's something we can learn. David there says to God, My goodness extendeth not to thee. In other words, David is saying, The good stuff I do cannot reach up like stretch Armstrong and make an impact, make a dent in you, O God. You are already all-sufficiently good, and my goodness really doesn't make a difference to you. It can't make an impact on you. It has no power or strength. So, what are we to do? That takes us to verse 3. As for the saints in the land... They are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. I remember years ago, in, in the early years of our marriage, I asked Kelsey, I said, bride of mine, how can I love you more? How can I show my affection for you more? And the kind of answers I was expecting, I was expecting things like, you know, buy me flowers, a good gift every once in a while, maybe an, an act of service around the house, start doing a couple things around the house to help me out a little more, hold my hand when we go to the movies or something like that. Instead, the answer she shared with me, I've not forgotten. She said, the way that you can show that you love me more is by delighting in our children, in my children. Because when you love them, it makes me feel loved. I think the same thing is being displayed in verse 3. Remember, David said in the King James Version of verse 2, My goodness extendeth not to thee. To thee. And so, so David can't make an impact with his goodness on God because God is all sufficiently good. But who can he show goodness to? Who can he love? It's God's children. God's people like we find in verse 3. Pretty amazing stuff. Have you ever faced or been asked that question? You know, you probably heard it. If you could have dinner with any three people on earth that have ever lived, what three people, you, you get to have an awesome dinner party with three people, who would you invite to your dinner party? And, and when I think about that question, my mind immediately goes to you know, professional athletes or movie stars or really pop culture icons, folks like that, maybe famous political figures. I want you to realize that King David, who writes this psalm as king of Israel, he has the ability to hang out with whoever he wants. He chooses his entourage. He chooses his company. And look at what David is saying here. If I could pick who I want to be around and spend time with, who is it? He says it's God's people. It's the saints. When you think for a moment, when you think about the church, when you think about the saints, do you think they, they are the excellent ones? When you think about those sitting right now with you on the pew, do you say, in them is all my delight? Something tells me today we've gotten really detached from this view that David had of God's people. 
And I think a faith-filled life would want to get in touch with it because you know what? We're going to be spending a lot of time with them, eternity time to be precise. And so number two, a faith-filled life, I delight in the saints. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. David says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The second word of verse 4 is a toughie. It's a tough Hebrew word. and I'll get to that in a minute. I, I don't know how many of y'all are familiar. A, a professional basketball player, I think he recently retired. Great player. His name was Carmelo Anthony. Carmelo Anthony. His first name is a very interesting first name, Carmelo. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going I'm to just pour out my soul in front of you all right here, right now. When I hear his first name, Carmelo, you know what comes to my mind? A delicious, sweet treat. I want caramel every time I hear his name. I mean, I feel like driving over to the nursing home and, and stealing a stash of Werther's Originals right then and there. <laughs> so when I hear Carmelo, I think caramel. And there may be some other people's names that, that, that are very similar to other words that when you hear their name, you think this. So the second word in verse 4, we're not sure what it is. We're not sure exactly. And I want you to take a look. We're not sure which of these two it is, but look at the Hebrew word on the left and the Hebrew word on the right. I provided that for you on your outline. What's the difference in these two words? You should be able to see, if you look at that second character and right underneath the second character, see that little, that little, little symbol is just a little bit different. All right? The transliteration, if we were to put this in English, of these two words is this. These are two different words. We have over here atsav, and over here we have atsav. Atsav, atsav. We have, in essence, a Carmelo Caramel situation going on here. And when you see one, you would have thought of the other and vice versa. It would have just happened to the Hebrew people, the Jew. It would have happened like that. Now, are you ready to see what these two words really mean? They mean the following. Atsav means idol, and atsav means to cause sorrow. Embedded into their language is an understanding that false gods, idols, bring immense sorrow. And every time they would have said it or seen the word, that sorrow, that pain, that agony, that death would have come into their minds. The sorrows, David says, of those who run after another god shall multiply in my younger and more vulnerable years, I was an options trader. And that is serious business. It, it is only for people who are serious and people who are disciplined. I was neither, so you know how this story is going to go. What I'm about to share with you is a common, the, the, the facts are basically the same. It repeated itself multiple times, but 
I might not have the numbers exactly right or all the facts together, but this is pretty true, what I'm about to share with you. I would get into an options trade, it'd be at $1,000. I'd purchase $1,000 of an option. I would make the decision that if that got up to $1,100, I was going to get out and take my $100 profit. If it went down to $950, I was going to get out because I was not going to lose more than $50. And so I, I bought the option. I wake up the next morning and it's up to $1,120. It's over the, the price I was going to get out at. And I said, this is awesome. This is great. I'm taking this baby to the moon now. And so the next day would come, I would wake up the next morning, and now it's at 900. It's fallen below the price I said I would get out if I lost money. Remember, it started at 1,000, went up to 1120, now it's down to 900. I said, I'm not getting out of this thing just yet. Just some things are happening around the world. This isn't that bad. I come home later that day, and Kelsey asks, how's your trade going? I said, well... It's below the price that I said I'd get out at. She says, it sounds like it's not working to me. Why are you still in it? <laughs> the next day would come, and now it's 500. And I say, I am not going to be proven wrong. I will get this thing right. I know it's going to work. It has to work. A couple more days would come. A Friday would come, and now it's down to I think to myself, oh, I know what they're up to. They think, they think I won't take this baby all the way to the end. Well, I tell you what, I will take it. I am a man who finishes what he starts. And by the end of that Friday, that sucker was down to zero, and I lost it all. Now, I believe that story, it's pride, it's greed, it's selfishness, it's arrogance, I think, that story encapsulates when we see the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. That's the way it works. For running after something other than God, these things, think about lies, think about sins. They just compound and build and build, and it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. On the other hand, that word multiply is the same word God uses for, to Abraham for multiply when he says, I'm going to multiply your offspring as the stars are in the heaven. So in essence, we have this question, do we want to multiply our sorrows or multiply our blessings? Go after other gods, you'll multiply your sorrows. Go after the one true God, you'll multiply your blessings. At the end of that verse, at the end of verse 4, David says, I won't even take their names upon my lips. Did you know Exodus 23.13, Exodus 23.13, the law forbid them even to take the names of other gods on their lips. They were not even to speak their names. And, and what we have going on in, in, in Judaism is you have this familiar language, everyday language. And the name of God was considered too high and too sacred to use. And the names of other gods were too low and too filthy to use. I find too often in our culture what we've done is we've taken the name of God and we've brought it down to every day. And we've taken the names of these false gods and given them credit and familiarity and brought them up to the everyday. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 3, but that and that and that must not even be named among the saints. Must not even be named among you. Yeah, we're talking about all the time, that stuff. He didn't really say that and that and that. He said what they are. But we've gotten all too familiar with those things. Verses 5 and 6 of our text. The Lord is my chosen portion. 
and my cup. He holds my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I don't like the game Monopoly. It is long and drawn out, and it only causes fights in your family. What especially takes a long time is the divvying up of properties. And so there's a, variant, a variation of the game in which what you do at the beginning is you just draw properties blindly and you just get what you draw and it gets the game going and here we are into the middle of the game. Can you imagine you just drawing properties at the beginning and you draw park place and boardwalk both? You're like, this is amazing, this is awesome, what luck. This is what I would have picked if I could have chosen for myself, I would have chosen these two cards. This is awesome, wow, really good stuff. David says the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And by the way, David, as, as a, a, a son far down in the food chain in his family, he wasn't getting much of an inheritance. He was going to get diddly squat. And he says... The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. If you imagine a, a land being drawn and property lines being divided out, and one here gets good looks, and another here gets intelligence, and another here gets athletic ability, and another here gets an awesome wardrobe, and one here and you, you get God, and only God. That's it. David says, basically, like Park Place and Boardwalk, I ended up getting what I would have chosen for myself anyway. Is God enough for you? In 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 13 through 18, we have what I believe to be the most clear description of the afterlife of eternity and what it looks like. Paul doesn't want them to be misinformed, he says. I'm going to share with you what I've gotten from a word from the Lord. I'm going to tell you what it's like. And I've shared this at a roundtable previously. He doesn't go into golden streets. He doesn't go into mansions. He doesn't go into robes and crowns and any of that stuff. You can debate that all you want to. But in the most clear-cut picture of what eternity looks like, if you go to 1 Thessalonians 4, the end of verse 17, Paul says, I'm going to tell you what it's like. It's this. We will be with the Lord always, period. Is that enough? Would just one glimpse of him in glory, the toils of life repay? You'll be with the Lord always. Is that enough? David says, it is. That's all I want. Continuing on, we go to verse 7. We go to verse 7 where David says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. I, uh, serving a ministry, you have a lot of things that you don't enjoy. There are tragedies that you have to experience. And I haven't experienced the full gamut. But among the worst is marriage problems and divorce. And from my time now as a decade as a minister, I can tell you those are the worst, worst things to go through among the worst. I remember we had one couple in particular, they would come to me, uh, we'd have our marriage talks, and our desire was, to, was humbly and prayerfully to receive counsel from the Lord. 
about their marriage. Come to find out after multiple sessions that the wife is not only coming to this counseling, she's going to another counselor by herself, and this is not Christian counseling, she's getting worldly counsel. And it seemed like all of the good that we would accomplish on a Wednesday from the Lord would be undone and possibly made worse by the counseling she was receiving on the next Monday of do what you want to do, live your own life, make your own choices, promoting selfishness instead of service, independence instead of community. And I think we can run into the same trap too. We must be very, very careful to dwell upon the counsel of the Lord. Is the Lord your number one counselor or is it someone else? Is it your lusts and desires you go to for counsel? David continues in verse 7, In the night also my heart instructs me. In the night also my heart instructs me. Good stuff here. This is really good. In the night might show that he's a man of integrity. In other words, he's not doing this just for show. When nobody's looking in the darkness, he's also doing what is right. But another idea might be something like we find in the Shema and in Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 7, where there we read that Israel was to dwell upon the commandments of the Lord and think on these things when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, or as when David says in the night, and when you rise. Sit in your house, walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. That's a good test for how much how you, much you value the counsel of the Spirit of God. A question for you, think about your family. Ask your kids if you don't know. What does the time look like when you are sitting in your house? What does it look like when you're walking by the way? What does it look like when you go down to sleep? And what does it look like when you get up to rise? I'll tell you what my time looks like. It looks like this. All four of those places. First thing when I get up in the morning and the last thing I do when I go to bed at night. This is... This is not accepting the counsel of the Spirit of God. David says, notice, in the night also my heart instructs me. Do you see what's happening? As he has surrendered himself to the will of God, more and more the Spirit of the Lord is writing his law upon David's heart so that his conscience is guiding him. And don't you all know, I know I've experienced it, when, when the head hits the pillow at night and I think about my life, my conscience is screaming at me because all of a sudden I'm being still. And there's things I need to do right and things I need to correct. And David isn't saying that I'm listening to those things in the night that my heart is instructing me to do. Verse 8, verse 8, the Lord, I have set the Lord always before me. Think about the implications of that. I'm about to go have an argument with my brother or my sister. The Lord's going to be there right beside me. I am facing negative peer pressure. The Lord is right there beside me. I'm about to get on my computer and go to websites that I shouldn't go to. David says, that ain't happening. I've set the Lord always beside me. Now, that's the helping us stay away from negative situations. But David also sees it in a positive light. 
he continues in verse 8, because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. I shall not be moved. Now, right hand could have a lot of meanings, but I would like to offer that David was a military man. And let's think military for a moment. This formation here is a phalanx. And the way it works is my shield guards the person to my left, and my right arm is going to be doing the fighting. And you know what's going to guard my right side? It's the person to my right that's going to keep me from getting hit by arrows or spears or something. The person to my right is up to his shield to keep me from getting attacked and hurt and wounded and killed. And so David is saying, because he's at my right hand, he's got his shield protecting me, I shall not be shaken. And David takes that shield metaphor even further. You go to Psalm 3.3. This is a, a youth song that you guys, I think, have sing. You sing this. Thou, O Lord, are a shield about me. Now that word there, about, if you've ever seen any, like Star Wars Episode One, there's these, 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 clone, these drones that, that roll out, and they got a force field all around them. And that's what David is saying. The way the Lord is with me, he is a shield about me. I'm not going to get hit from the right or the left or behind or from front because when the Lord is with me, I shall not be shaken. And so David and we must acknowledge the continual presence and trust the continual protection of God. Now I'd like to, in closing, as we get near the end, 9a, I want to take a look at that and also verse 11. David says, therefore, my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices. And then go to 11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy at your right hand or pleasures forevermore. What's the tone here? What's the, the vibe that you're getting from these verses? Let me highlight a few words and see if that helps. Glad, rejoices, joy, pleasures. Let's take this further. What's the extent? What's the duration? What's the magnitude of these things that David is experiencing that we should experience? Look at these words. My whole being, forevermore, fullness. Oh, but David, that's something we experience in the future, right? That's not something for right now. That's in the eternity to come. David says, no, that's present tense. My heart is glad. My whole being rejoices, present tense, is, are, right here, right now. And that's why the Lord came, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that, that we may experience life abundantly right now. Not into the future, but right now. And so, are you experiencing an abundance of joy right now? It's time that you trust in the Lord. Finally, our last thought. We go to... 9b and verse 10. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. That passage right there, Peter in his first gospel sermon recorded, Paul in his first gospel sermon recorded, both of them quote that, and both of them say those verses refer to Jesus and his resurrection, his power over death. And so in reality, these words that David is saying find their reality in Jesus. 
and his resurrection. Jesus is the one who truly lived this faith-filled life, and so he could face death and know that he will not abandon my soul, my Father. He will not let my flesh see corruption. He will be with me to the very end and through the end. And so all of a sudden, these verses take on a completely different tone. Please get this as we close. Yes, these verses show me what it means to live a faith-filled life, but now going backwards. If I want to, when I'm on my deathbed one day, be able to face that moment with confidence, assurance, joy, and peace, then what we saw in verses 1 all the way to 9 is how I need to live my life. So that when it comes to that last moment, I'm ready for it. And so now we offer the invitation to you. Are you living your life like we've just seen? If not, this is a time in which we can pray with you and we can all make the commitment to be like this. But here's the thing, if you want to share in a resurrection like his, like Jesus's, you need to share in a death like his. And by that I mean a death, burial, and resurrection in the waters of baptism. Salvation is there before you. No fear of death. Joy. Counsel. All that you ever wanted is available for you at the cross. And so our invitation now is extended to you. If you have any need, if we can serve you, please come as together we stand.